Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg, and I'm here to read you my Dvar Torah on Parshat Vayishlach. The title is, Our Name is Israel, Israel. In the Torah, the giving of a name, or a renaming, is an act of high significance. The new name does not just identify. It typically defines the person, and often foreshadows their purpose in life and future contribution. Thus, Abraham of Ur of the Chaldeans is renamed Avraham and sent to Canaan to establish a covenant that will shape many generations and many nations. Sarai is renamed Sarah to signal that she has left behind the idolatry of Haran and is destined to be the one who gives birth and transmit this Brit to the next generational successor. The name Sarah defines her as co-partner in the covenant and consequently a mother of nations. See Genesis 17.16 and see my essay on Parshat Lech Lecha, Covenantal Pluralism. In this Parsha, our father Jacob survives an incredible struggle with a mysterious divine being that all but wipes him out and he is then renamed Israel Yisrael. We, all the future people of the covenant, are called not the children of Abraham or the children of Isaac, but B'nai Israel, the children of Israel. Then this switch may be the most momentous name change in the tradition. It defines not only Jacob and his life, but the mission of his descendants for the rest of history. Note carefully the meaning of the name as explained by the Torah. Quote, you shall be called Israel because you have wrestled with God and with people, and you have prevailed. That's Genesis 32:28. The word Israel, Sar-el, one who wrestles or contends with God, and of course with humans as well. The mission of Jewry, its contribution to humanity will be fulfilled through striving with God and humanity for the benefit of both. Now consider for a moment what must a wrestler do in the process of wrestling with another. One, you have to embrace, hug tightly, hold the other close to you. Two, pushing back and pushing off the other so you do not fall and crash. Three, exhibit endurance, straining muscles and exerting will to the limit in order to hang in there. And four, in spirit, not give in, not give up and take a fall. Rather, you persist until you overcome. Now, how have the people of Israel, us, fulfilled the calling in its name? My answer is we have wrestled with God and humanity to bring them closer to each other. In the annals of civilization, Jewry is credited with bringing monotheism, the understanding that there is one universal God-creator who brings the universe into being and sustains it. But the deeper contribution to the world is that we have taught people that this infinite force, greater than the vast universe, beyond human comprehension, nevertheless cares deeply about finite humans, about this puny fragment of a planet. In fact, this God loves you and asks to join with you in committed relationship 
for life, i.e. a covenant. And we wrestled with the people, not to recoil from the cosmically towering or inspiring Lord, not to shrink back out of a feeling of insignificance, but to step up and embrace the loving God. Be embraced so that you never will be alone or feel abandoned ever again. Thus we brought humans closer to God, and we hung in there with our teachings in the face of being marginalized or dismissed by the dominant majority religions. Then too we taught humanity that this world is a creation, that it came into being before us and will outlast us, but not be forever, that the Creator existed before existence came into being and will exist long after this universe fails. But this Lord loves us and loves creation. God asks us to guard it, preserve it, treat it as a precious, if passing, gift. God asks us to join in and repair this beautiful but flawed creation, or at least repair that small part of it that we inhabit. We taught humans to believe and act on this responsibility to upgrade creation for the benefit of all life. To communicate this creation teaching, we had to wrestle then with Greek science that insisted that the world existed eternally and that God is indifferent to this existence. We wrestle now with those modern scientists who argue the universe is the outcome of a blind, random process. Therefore, this is a world without values or purpose or outcome. Nor have we been intimidated by the remarkable achievements of science into giving up our teaching that humanity is called to repair this world. We have not yielded our commitment to tikkun olam, either in the face of entrenched reactionaries who resist changing an unequal or unfair status quo, and we still wrestle with an economic system that often puts profits ahead of the environment and that dismisses stewardship of nature as overruled by the need for wealth generation. We also taught humanity that God is moral and wants us to do good and not evil. Our prophets proclaim to us and to the world, you cannot substitute ritual for ethics. One cannot pay off God with sacrifices while cheating fellow human beings. We injected into the Western bloodstream this centrality of conscience, the obligation to uphold the right, even if society looks away or the official religion legitimates the flawed status quo, or even if the majority shouts you down. Hermann Rauschening, a close associate of Hitler in his early days, described Hitler's reasoning for his hatred of the Jews. Quote, Conscience is a Jewish invention. My task is to free men from the dirty and degrading ideas of conscience and morality. We also wrestle with Stalinism and multiple tyrannies which claim total authority and resented our teaching to uphold conscience and to give absolute obedience only to God and never to human systems. We taught that human absolutes are forms of idolatry and we urged people to separate from them and come closer to God. Jews, whether personally practicing Judaism or not, were persecuted for representing a counterculture to the reigning absolute system. Yet we hung in there. 
So let me also cite three of the many times that we wrestled with God to bring God closer to humanity or to treat them better, even as I've described how we wrestle with humanity to bring them closer to God. In Exodus chapters 33-34, God proposed to wipe out the people of Israel for betraying the covenant with idol worship, that is the golden calf. God offered to replace the Israelites with faithful Moshe and his descendants. Moses pushed back and said, If you're going to destroy Israel, then wipe me out first. Then Moses pressed God to explain God's standards, and he received the following answer, quote, The Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abundant in love and truth, keeps love for thousands of generations, forgiving iniquity of sin, but will not clear the guilty. That's Exodus 34, verse 7. But the rabbis wrestled with God to come closer and be more merciful than that. They made this definition of God's nature, the cornerstone of Yom Kippur, the holiday of forgiveness. They repeated this divine self-description endlessly, but they struck the words, will not clear the guilty. They repeated this formula without the statement of not clearing the guilty or holding future generations accountable. And they repeated this statement for generations until the tradition and God accepted to be loving, forgiven, and yes, even clear the guilty. Thus they brought God closer to people. Similarly, the written Torah, the revelation at Sinai, presented a long list of sins and spiritual crimes for which the penalty was death. The rabbis, as custodians of Jewish religion, understood that the principle of reverence for life, the central principle of the Torah, was incompatible with frequent death penalties. So they wrestled with God, with the texts, and with the inherited legal process and capital punishments. They tightened the procedures for validating evidence, they narrowed the meanings of the death penalty text and sharply increased the requirements for being classified as a capital crime. They required that every death sentence be the outcome of a judgment of a regional court consisting of 23 judges or preferably of the Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin of 71 judges. They wrestled so well that death penalty all but disappeared. If once in 70 years a Sanhedrin approved the death penalty, then according to Rabbi Eliezer ben Azariah, it became known as the bloody Sanhedrin. See on this the Mishnah in Makot chapter 1, Mishnah 10. Many world religions took a judgmental attitude toward humanity and accepted the apolyptic vision. They predicted that few would earn a place in the world to come, and very few would be spared in the end-time cleansing of sinners. Again, the Jewish tradition wrestled with that exclusion consciousness. Whether it was inside our own heritage or other faiths, we insisted God was loving by nature. All would have a share in the world to come. Only the exceptional few would forfeit their place. They wrestled with God to come closer to people not to be a forbidding, punishing ruler, but to come 
to people's lives as Shechina, as kind, understanding, helpful, forgiving. Again, the rabbis would not yield until divinity presented as the loving God. In sum, the descendants of Jacob Israel have kept the faith and honored the call to wrestle. I see this model of wrestling with God as our instruction to contend with inherited harsh judgments in the Torah and tradition, be it on homosexuality, on non-believers, on sinners, on other faiths. As the children of Israel, we need to strive unyieldingly until we too overcome and bring God and humanity closer and kinder to each other.